Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we are continuing our series on one of the most significant movements in film history, the French New Wave. Today we turn our discussion towards the idea of auteur theory and look at the film Jules and Jim from director Francois Truffaut. Cinephile and film podcaster Omaya Jones is back for this episode, so stick around. Really quick plug for our Patreon. If you love Arthouse Garage and want even more, you can subscribe to our Patreon today. In addition to supporting the show financially, you also get bonus episodes, uncut episodes, video episodes, and ad-free episodes. The most recent bonus episode that I actually just finished recording with Russell Miller is a little spoiler talk about Thor Love and Thunder. So if you loved that movie or hated that movie and want to hear what we have to say, uh, check out the Patreon for that coming very soon. We've also got merchandise discounts, video interviews, some great stuff there. So go to patreon.com slash arthousegarage or find a link in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. Qui c'est, Jules? C'est moi. Et vous? Jim. Jim et Jules, alors? Uh, non, Jules et Jim. <laughs> Elle avait des bagues à chaque doigt, des tas de bracelets autour des poignets, et puis elle chantait avec une voix. Attention, prêt. Un, voilà. deux, oh. Elle avait ses yeux, ses yeux normales, qui me fascinaient, qui me fascinaient. Il y avait le bas de son visage pâle, de femme fatale qui me fut. On a continué à tourner, tous les deux enlacés, tous les deux enlacés, tous les deux enlacés. Welcome to Art House Garage. Before we get into today's discussion, a quick note. I said on the previous episode that this week's show would be about the new A24 film, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Well, that one doesn't actually come out in wide release till next week, so I decided to swap the two. So this week is part two of the French New Wave, and you can look forward next time for a discussion of Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into today's discussion. Last time on the show, Omaya Jones helped us with a general overview of what the French New Wave is and why it's important. And we talked about the film Vivre Sa Vie from director Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, So if you haven't heard that yet, go back and check it out. Today, we're looking at another important director from this period. It's Francois Truffaut. We'll talk about his film, Jules and Jim, and we'll open by looking at one of the most important concepts that emerged from this time, auteur theory. If you aren't familiar with Omaya Jones, he's been on this show many times before. He also organizes and programs the Arkansas Times film series and is just generally involved in lots of film things in central Arkansas. Omaya, welcome back to Art House Garage. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me again. Um, I, you know, it's always nice to be here and talk films and cinema. Yes. Oh. Well, I said last time on the show, you know, that you programmed the Arkansas Times film series. It was on hiatus. It has been on hiatus because of the pandemic. But I think that we're able to add film programmer back into your title. Correct. Tell us tell us what's going on there. Right. So, yes, um, about a week ago, we reached out to Riverdale to see if there there was interest in starting back up. And actually, I think when I was going to see something i don't even remember what it was at this point but the manager actually had asked if we had planned on bringing it back and so uh i met with uh stephanie smittle at the arkansas times and also rep brinkley who's there now who does a lot of writing for them on culture and food stuff and we reached out to riverdale and we've got it started back up again and so the first thing that we've got coming up will be hopefully uh we're still sort of making sure all the 
T's are crossed and I's dotted or whatever. But yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, the 23rd of this month, um, Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives, which we talked about, yeah, uh, I think, right. last year. I think that was last year, right? It might have been two years ago. Okay. I think well, it might, um, I think that was also the first time you were ever on the show. Oh. Because cool, we did um, contemporary Asian cinema and we started right. with two weird ethical films, that one and Cemetery of Splendor. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Which we I'm, screened yeah. as part of this series in 2019. Okay. Yeah. So, and the reason that we're doing Uncle Boon Me is because on the 26th, they start showing a Pitch Up Long's newest film, Memoria. And so we wanted to do something that sort of coordinated with that screening so we can promote that because I'm actually really excited about that coming. Yes. Um, and then so to kick it off uh, this year, we're going to do a film every other month. Okay. Before I think transitioning back to monthly in 2023. So then um, I'll, I'll tell you that the proposed films for the rest of the year is in October will be raw. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oof, and, I I'm nervous to watch it. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well, uh, so like, you know, um, I try to have a balance in the films in terms of, well, definitely in terms of like gender of the director and the creative team and everything. Um, that's not the only reason I want to show raw. I actually think it's really good. And I actually was really excited about Titan. And I just think it's a good excuse to like expose more people to this exciting yeah. director. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's perfect for October because you know Halloween and everything. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, in December, uh, the proposed film is Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is I've a never seen that. Japanese film by Nagasi Ashima, who also directed. Um, I think like probably outside of Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence is probably no, most known film is in the realm of the senses. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, uh, and it also stars David Bowie, uh, Katishi Katano. And uh, the composer was like, I, I can't pronounce his name. Uh, I haven't, I have not committed his name to memory yet, but it actually has like one of the greatest scores of all time uh, to me anyway, um, right up there with the score for Jules and Jim, which we'll talk about, which I also think is there like one go. of the wow. best composed <laughs> scores of all time. Yeah, I did the really um, good. Wow. That's that's quite a lineup. That's really cool. That also the David Bowie tie-in because we have the great, mm. uh, great-looking Bowie. And what I've heard so far is that it's really good. The Bowie uh, sort of biopic uh, that is uh, called Moon Age Daydream coming oh, yeah. in a few months too. So it'll be a little, little David. Is that slated to be a December? Really? Like, is that coming out this calendar? I want to say it's September, November. I think because I know it okay. played. Uh, I got an email the other day that it's. It's like in the works for pretty soon. I think, yeah, I think it's going to be like this award season um, and it's going to be like an IMAX release and all of that. So that's kind of cool too. But yeah, so, I mean, first of all, if about the Arkansas Times film series, I think it's so cool because, you know, you hear about, oh, in LA and in New York, you can go watch these old movies all the time where you can watch these art house things that we just don't get here in central Arkansas. So Arkansas Times film series, which you program is I think it's so huge to, to bring some of that here. Um, and, and so I'm always excited. Like Uncle Boon Me, I loved and I've never seen it on the big screen. And so I'm really excited to do that or with a crowd. And then, um, of course, Memoria, if anyone doesn't know, that's his latest film. And the the sort of strange distribution model they're doing is that they're not supposedly they're not releasing it on home video. Although I think you can buy a British. That's like it's like so like Neon, who's the. North American distributor has said that in, that they will never release it on home video. So that's like a North America slash US specific thing. Yeah, and okay. so it's just doing these one week engagements. So it's like a tour. Sort of touring. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was like, oh, we'll probably won't get it here in Little Rock. And then I found out they are, it is coming on my birthday, no less, August 26th. So I'm so excited for that. And then now I can make it a, a weird ethical doubleheader that week with, uh, with uncle boo me before that so that is just super exciting i i can't wait and i encourage anyone listening to check that out if you're anywhere nearby central arkansas um i'll link to the facebook page event for that and uh, i think ticket information is coming soon yes cool all right anything else we need to know about the the screenings um you know i just want to encourage everybody to come out you know like i i think you know, the way it works is Riverdale pays for the you know the rights to everything, mm-hmm. like the, the 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 rights to screen things. Um and I think it's good to support local, you know, yeah. businesses. Um so I just I just want people to come out um 
and just support the series, support Memoria when it's here. And uh, just also, you know, support smaller independent films. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I really thought Memoria, it'll probably come to like Dallas. I think we, you and I texted about it. Like, mm. we'll, we'll make a road trip whenever it happens. And they're like, oh, we're getting in a Little Rock. So very exciting stuff. Well, that is great. Lots to look forward to in a few weeks. Uh, and let's shift our focus now to the French New Wave, episode two of our series on the French New Wave. And let's talk about... Uh, I guess let's start by talking about auteur theory. So we talked last week about kind of an introduction to the French New Wave and how it's kind of this really creative period. All these uh, they were kind of film critics first and then got cameras and broke all the rules and, and just had this incredibly creative kind of um, t- period that, that has been hugely influential since then. Uh, and one of the ideas that has kind of come out of that is something I think I learned this word before I ever heard about what the French New Wave is, and that is uh, auteur theory. So, mm-hmm. what is auteur theory? Uh, what is that translated as, and and why is that such an important uh, thing? I'm actually I'm curious, sort of like, do you have a take on auteur theory? Yeah, I find as a concept, it can be kind of divisive. It seems interesting. Yeah, well, I can tell you. So I learned. You know, I, I didn't study film in college, but I got to go to – I had one film class, and uh, we learned about it in that. And basically, you know, auteur, I believe, translates as author. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of the idea that the director is the author or the creative force, the primary creative force behind a film or should be, right? And kind of before this time, um, for the most part, the director – they were involved in creative decisions, but it wasn't like – they were the person i mean writer director was a less common thing i think they weren't necessarily like the creative person like the producers had the idea of like here's how this is going to happen we'll get a uh, actor we'll get this star we'll get this star we'll get uh, this person to do the music we'll get this person to direct it and it's like the director is just another part of this team and they're the ones there on the day yelling action yelling cut making those decisions kind of being the leader on set but this is sort of a shift in thinking to say, okay, like if we had a single singular vision uh, from a single person, then that make, makes film more interesting. And so one of the things that I learned is kind of uh, researching for this, this is on, I found on Criterion's website is Truffaut. And he's, so he wrote that, um, that essay we talked about last time mm-hmm. in Cahiers du Cinema called uh, a certain tendency of the French cinema. And this is kind of where he introduced the idea, I believe. Um, but in this his short clip, it was like an interview he did on some American talk show. Um, but he talked about, I, I don't think I'd had it, heard it put this way, or at least I'd forgotten that he kind of puts it or two or three versus like versus working anonymously. So he talks about, um, he talks about in, in that, that essay as well. He talks about like people um, adapting in you know, literature, different things, and sort of like stepping out and letting you know whatever the story is kind of speak for itself, I guess. Mm-hmm. Versus, um, you know, saying, "Okay, I'm I'm Francois Truffaut. I have these ideas. I have the way I see the world, and I'm going to try to translate onto a camera." And that's just a very kind of different approach uh, that I think still carries through. And now we have okay, like a Tarantino movie is different than a Marvel movie or something, or a Scorsese movie. That's a lot of different ideas. What What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think um, I was trying to like check the, the 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 producer of the film, but like, yeah, you're right. And something that you're getting at is that the way films were made in the Hollywood studio system, there wasn't our tour often, but it was the producer or it was like the studio, and so like they would move directors around. And it was almost like a work for hire type of situation. Mm-hmm. And um, so you look at something like The Wizard of Oz, there are like two or three different credited directors on that and Gone with the Wind. And at one point, the director of Wizard of Oz was moved to Gone with the Wind. And so like the black and white sequences were directed by a different person, the color sequences, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so starting in like 1948, there was a there was a, an essay written by a guy named Alexandria Astruc. And it was called The Birth of the New Avant-Garde, La Camera Stylo, which just means like camera pin. And he was just arguing that you could 
you, you could use the camera the same way an author would use a pen. Mm-hmm. And so even if there was a different screenwriter or someone doing an adaptation of a novel or something, the act of directing itself is a form of writing, which I think is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think like Orson Welles might push back on some of this because his idea was like editing is really like the thing, mm-hmm. um, which is true, right? Like you, you really make the film in editing. Um, but so like what Alexander Osterk wrote was there's always an avant-garde when something new takes place. To come to the point, the cinema is quite simply becoming a means of expression, just as all the other arts have been before it, and in particular, painting the novel. After having been successfully a fairground attraction, an amusement um, analogous to Boulevard Theater, or a means of preserving the images of an era, it is gradually becoming a language. And by language, I mean a form in which and by which an artist can express his thoughts, however abstract they may be, or translate his obsession exactly as he does in the contemporary essay or novel. That is why I would like to call this new age of cinema the age of the camera stylo. Uh, Direction is no longer a means of illustrating or presenting a scene, but an act of writing. The filmmaking slash author writes his camera writes with his camera as a writer writes with his pen and an art which the length of the film and the soundtrack is put in motion and proceeds by means of a certain form and a certain story. And then, so like this idea was then later taken up by Truffaut and yeah, he detailed it in a series of essays, one of which is the, um, on a certain, certain tendency of French film. And in that he sort of like goes at sort of the establishment of the French filmmakers and then talks about how, the director can do more than just translate an adaptation. And I think, I think the quote you were referring to is like, he talks about how, um, let's politic the author. I trans, I think I transcribed it, uh, but it says the politic des auteurs films are, are of course made by a whole team of people, but either someone has a, or has something to say, or someone has a certain ideas about life or cinema or the world. So everything he does is interesting. Even if some films more are more so than others. Mm-hmm. or it's someone who works anonymously and it's of little interest. Yep. Uh, and it came from the phrase by, uh, uh, I guess there's a playwright named Giroudot who says there are no plays, only authors. And by that he meant that there was a body of work and other plays or random successes or little interest. And so the idea is, um, or the idea also had a mean in French criticism in terms of French film. And it held that any film by Couture Bresson was more of more interest, even if it wasn't ultimately a success than a film by Jean Delanoe uh, or any other director adapting a masterpiece anonymously, let's say. Yeah. And so like that gets picked up by an American critic named Andrew Saris. And he wrote a book where he sort of like interpreted that. Hmm. And then he, in his book, he then like came up with some arbitrary categories. They're actually really strange, strange like name categories. And then he basically like puts all of Hollywood directors into these categories, basically like who's not toward who's not. Wow, and then after that, it goes into academia. Right. And like, that's kind of like where I, cause I didn't go to film school either, but like, that's kind of like where I lose track of where the, where the idea develops further is like when it goes, gets to academia. Um, but I have seen like, it was the there was a website it was a database that was referred to as like the raw material of auteurism and it had like a list of it would list a director their films and all of their stylistic tendencies mm-hmm. wow which i think is sort of like it's like it's, it, to me it seems almost like too mechanical a process a at that point yeah yeah like like because it's not just camera tricks you know right. or like mm-hmm. not just stylistic ticks but it's like yeah someone trying to really get at something and using the form to say something the same way a novelist would. That is very interesting. Yeah. So that was the same quote that I watched the clip of and he talks. Yeah. He he says, I thought that was an interesting part too, where he's like any film by Brisson or any film by Mm -hmm. whoever these like interesting auteurs, even a lesser one is more interesting than, um, you know, whatever studio film. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know that to bring this to modern day a little bit not to be controversial but it reminded me of what martin scorsese said about marvel a few years ago when he said you know that's not cinema and you know thinking about and i think that you know i'm not gonna i don't want to bash marvel obviously you and i talked about yeah. shang chi last year like i like a lot of what they do um, and i think they also have been intentionally i think like handing movies to like directors with a vision like chloe zhao had her marvel movie all that but generally it's like here's this uh 
it's almost like a TV show now where we have like a showrunner and Kevin Feige who's kind of pulling all the strings, but having maybe kind of like the old studio system, we'll plug in a director here, but we know what this is going to be. You know? Exactly. You're right. Yeah. yeah. I think it makes sense to think of Kevin Feige as like a studio head mm-hmm. from like the early 20th century. It's almost like old Hollywood in a way. And so Martin mm-hmm. Scorsese is saying uh, that's not – those things are never going to be as interesting as what's the latest um, film from you know Steve McQueen or whoever that's like a director with a vision. I think that is really compelling and I, and I like that a lot. Um, yeah. And, and I thought that was maybe a, a, a modern way to, to kind of think about this dichotomy. Right. And I and I think like to some extent, like regardless of who you are, the idea of altruism, it's sort of baked into everything. I think everybody kind of accepts it, even if you think you maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, just because like it's how we talk about stuff. You know, like when you yeah. see a new when the new Spielberg film is coming out, it says mm-hmm. from director Steven Spielberg yeah. or Robert Zemeckis gets name checked. Um, like the directors have become personalities in their own right. Mm-hmm. And even on stuff that like even on the studio films, I'm sure like that, like they march out Taika Waititi to yeah. talk about the North New Thor, and like yeah, yeah. his personality is all over that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Even if and so and also you know there's always there's also like there's always been a tension too right between the director and the producer and there's always like battles. So like one of the one of the auteurs that one of the people they lot as an auteur is with Nicholas Ray who did like Remorse mm-hmm. Without a Cause, mm-hmm. um, and one of his best films is Johnny Guitar. And the the lead in that, um, hold on, I have to Google. Yeah. I don't want to make sure. I'm going to say Shane Russell, but I want to make sure. But it might not be her. So you're going to have to cut this. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, Joan Crawford. Yeah, so like in Johnny Guitar, like Joan Crawford was a producer in that film. And she had a lot of say and what happened and you could argue that she was actually the auteur behind the film because she had yeah. so much influence and in, in what got on camera that's making me think about like how tom cruise operates right like yeah he shows up in top gun and like he's not the director but he's making a lot of the creative decisions because he has the pull of tom cruise and like I, that to the detriment of some things like whatever that that mummy reboot i remember part of the problem supposedly was that mm-hmm. like he wanted to change too much and it kind of fell apart but anyway um but yeah or like the i think the mission impossible stuff like steve mcquarrie is the director but he's like their creative partners and yeah yeah i mean they work really closely together yeah. um and i don't if you do you really listen to q a podcasts you you send me the links and i'm like oh i'll listen okay. to this and then i have it <laughs> i have well, a couple of times so <laughs> mccory has been on there several times and just like listening to their process is really interesting yeah well just because like with the mission impossible movies it does seem like even if they have like a vague idea of what the plot is mm-hmm. it is really built around the set pieces and mm-hmm. it's really built around getting the studio to give them millions of dollars to travel the world <laughs> go to locations and then figure out what the stunt is going to be and then sort of reverse engineer the movie from that wow and also like right on the fly like you can so you can change it at any time um and so i think this goes back to what i was saying last time we talked which is the more you read the more you learn that like what you think of as an unconventional process isn't that unconventional because Mm -hmm. like uh, godard i guess famously worked in a similar fashion and just at a much lower scale you know not hundreds of millions of dollars so, yeah, yeah. Like with like Viva Savi, I think they they shot for a week, stopped production, then he figured out the movie, and then they started shooting again. Hmm. Or like Hong Sang Su writes the scenes that they're going to shoot that day, the morning of, uh, and just like and yeah. but it, like Truffaut worked in a similar fashion. It seemed like mm-hmm. like improvising dialogue with the actors sometimes on the day of, yeah, um, wow. and just like being flexible. Yeah, that's super interesting. And that's also probably very different from Hollywood studio system when it was like, we're going to crank these movies out. We've got like mm-hmm. the uh, all the people in place and, you know, that it's sort of a well-oiled machine, whereas this is a more free-flowing process. And then we talked about Wong Kar Wai being similar as we talked about all his movies last year. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, that's yeah. maybe a good transition to talking about Francois Truffaut. Um, so last time we kind of focused on Godard, uh, but we, I mean, we talked about Truffaut a little bit, but I guess to kind of recap, what is kind of his place in the French new wave? And we've kind of already touched on it uh, with Cahiers du Cinema and all of that, but um, what do you know about him and his, 
you know, his, whether that's his life or his kind of his work output. Um, to me, it seems like he was, he was like one of the, the primary drivers of the movement, mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of the, the essays that he wrote for Kaiju Cinema, uh, his fanatical cinemaphilia, mm-hmm. uh, like he was really an advocate for cinema and I, and I think that his energy, um, I mean, not, not to go to completely go back to auteur theory, but like there, there was another essay in Kaiju cinema where the the author of this particular essay was just saying that like, there was not unanimous consent on this. Like, like they didn't have, like everybody was on board, but his enthusiasm, I think like Truffaut's enthusiasm in particular is what sort of like drove the early movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said last week too, that it was like, you know, he has all these ideas, he's writing these essays and then, uh, you know, he's sort of seen as this outsider and then he gets funding to make the 400 blows and like wins con that year. Right. And mm-hmm. suddenly, suddenly it's like this huge name. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of sense of, uh, I have these ideas. Okay. Now prove it. And like, it worked. You did it. And, and watching the 400 blows this week and, Jules and Jim, I had a little bit more of a sense of like the French New Wave. There's almost this like rock star energy, like being kind of rebellious and and um, yeah, just like saying it was tanked to hell with tradition in a way, and like we're gonna do things our own way, and, and here's how it turned out, kind of thing. So I don't know if that all tracks, but that's sort of the sense I had this week. Yeah, and and I think you know like. Again, like they were trying to develop a language, right? Like they were trying to like figure out how how you can convey ideas and emotions with the camera in a way that that hadn't been done before, hmm. um, or at least probably hadn't been done. This is like a whole other conversation, but sort of like the silent era and how many of those films don't exist and how like we may never know what we lost. But yeah, yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Do you have thoughts generally about? looking at Truffaut's actual style on camera versus maybe Godard or versus other people. Is there anything that's like, okay, this is what Truffaut did. That was maybe his own thing that, um, that we can maybe pull from the movie. Yeah. I don't know. I think they were equally playful in different ways. You know, like when we, when we talk about, I think it was in 400 blows, there's a shot where there's like a, there's like a whip pan that cuts to another whip pan that ends up like being a close up. Right. Like that's how like they get to the close up and like that's really interesting. And and then in Jules and Jim, there's just like so much energy in the in the, like the movement of the camera, mm-hmm. uh, some freeze frame stuff. Yeah. And um mm-hmm. and then also like in both films, he has a lot of like mixing of like archival footage. But I think Godard's probably not above that either. I think where Godard's style goes seems much more essayistic. Right. Like mm, okay. much more of like, especially in the late sixties when he becomes more political. Um, like I ended up watching after, after we recorded last time, I ended up watching two or three things I know about her, mm. which was an, another film about prostitution, but it's Godard as well, right? Yeah. That's Godard, but it was much less narratively driven. Hmm. In fact, the narrative is almost completely separated from and the, this essay that Godard sort of whisper reads throughout the film mm-hmm. and they're related thematically, mm-hmm. but it, the essay doesn't necessarily drive the plot. And I think like, so Godard goes in a much different direction, yeah. sort of exploring what all you can do uh, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, there was that one sequence in Viva Savi that was sort of like that. Like we talked mm-hmm. about, it was almost like an, uh, here learn about prostitution and how it's changed over the years like this little documentary of course the whole thing is kind of a documentary style but yeah that's interesting uh, i've heard of two or three things that i've heard about her but i or i know about her but i haven't seen it but um but yeah having seen you know two films by each director i can't really speak to it but i there is something about Truffaut's films that i connect with a little bit easier i don't know if it's like there's more of an emotional core yeah i think he's like warmer that. Yeah, I think that maybe that's right. Um, 
whereas yeah like so i've seen breathless and i've seen viva savi and there is it there's almost an academic quality to viva savi it feels like like i guess kind of what we're talking about where it's like here's an interesting thing to learn about and then it makes sense that you're talking about he you know he kind of pushes that and becomes more yeah essayistic or whatever there whereas these two films by Truffaut that i've seen now 400 blows and uh jules and jim they yeah, I think warmer is a good way to say it. They, I felt, I felt more of an emotional connection like immediately with both of them than I did with Viva Savi, which is not necessarily good or bad. But I think the last time I was like, yeah, I don't know, I didn't fully connect with Viva Savi, <laughs> but uh, I really liked Jules and Jim a lot and the Four Hundred Blows as well. Yeah, so, I think yeah. Uh, Truffaut does just does a really good job of thinking of the characters as people, and I think, mm-hmm. um, I mean, and, and I don't want to project um, onto anybody but it just seems like Truffaut in general probably cares about people more <laughs> yeah yeah i can that that feels right to me but yeah maybe, maybe we don't want to bash guitar what a what a bastard that guy was just kidding <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah so i guess let's talk about Truffaut's films and jules and jim um how many of his films have you seen i've, I've just told you i've seen now two <laughs> so uh you've probably seen more than i have yeah um let me pull up letterbox real quick because i know i've seen uh although what go ahead i was gonna say although i realized i think he directed fahrenheit 451 uh, Mm -hmm. from the 60s version of that which i i have seen it's been a very long time and i certainly didn't like know who Truffaut was when i watched it so there there's a third technically that i remember very little about but i love that book I, i mean um while i'm looking i know Similarly to Godard, I would say I haven't seen like a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely like 400 Blows, Tools and Gem, Day for Night. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Letterboxd, I've seen five. I forgot I was watching something and he was talking about some of his one of his less successful films and he referenced uh, The Bride Wore Black. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot that he made that film, which is like it's like his his Hitchcock film. And I think it's interesting because like, I don't think anybody was really able to make a Hitchcock film except Hitchcock until Brian De Palma. Mm. And like, and he does it like De Palma does it by like also putting his own lurid spin on things. Mm -hmm. And like, because by the time De Palma's making films, you can be much more explicit and provocative than you could. Um, So yeah, when he made the, yeah. yeah, So I, uh, according to Letterboxd, I've seen five. Um, There you go. Uh, would you say like Jules and Jim is one of your favorites of those five? Absolutely. Yeah. Although there's one shoot the piano player, which oh, I would yeah. like to watch again. Cause, cause I love that title Yeah. and I don't, I don't remember anything about it. I think that the progression time-wise was 400 blows and then mm-hmm. shoot the piano player. And then this, I think, and maybe there's, let me see if there's anything else in between there, but I'm pretty sure that's the, um, the order of things. And, you know, I think that the way I become familiar with titles is like, looking at the criterion stuff and so all three mm-hmm. of those are on criterion but he has a, a ton that are not uh and he also acted too i'm seeing like mm-hmm. he's in uh he's in close 400 encounters. blows oh he's in yeah he's in 400 blows i saw the there's a little, little cameo of that um but let's see yeah so 400 blows is 59 shoot the piano player in 60 jules and jim in 62 fahrenheit 451 in 66 I've heard of uh, Stolen Kisses in 68, Bed and Board in 70, Day for Night is 73. Um, and then The Last Metro, I've seen the the cover on that. That's 1980. And then it looks like his very last is Confidentially Yours in 1983. So, yeah. Interesting run. And, and so today we're going to talk about Jules and Jim. Although, for Patreon listeners, you will also, the bonus episode that you will get is also us talking about 400 blows. So we're going to, I'll tease that here. We're going to talk about that one as well in more depth um, for the, for the patrons only feed, but yeah, so let's talk about Jules and Jim. Um, maybe let's start talking about the performers. So obviously we have Jules and Jim, the two mm-hmm. title characters are Oscar Werner and Henri Serre. If I, again, French pronunciations, I'm probably getting wrong, but then also um, Jean Moreau is uh, Catherine or Katrina, how, and the, the French is different than what they put in the subtitles, but she's she's really the the central folks mm-hmm. of the story. Um, yeah, are, I guess we can start with one of them. But like, are the are these performers you know people that were significant uh, outside of this film? Did they continue to work in the French New Wave or or, or elsewhere? 
Uh, you know, John Moreau is definitely significant. Um, I'm seeing she died in 2017, so like re- relatively recently. Yeah. Um, like she was in Orson Welles' The Trial. She was in. Um, let's see. I don't I'm looking a few, for something a few I other things that are kind of quintessentially French New Wave, and I'm gonna I'm gonna look back and see um, what those were. Wow, she has a ton of credits on IMDb. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she's got a credit. She's in Love Actually. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Uncredited. Yeah, I don't know. It's like a a very, very, very small role. Yeah. That's funny. Um, she's in the Four Hundred Blows. Actually, that's interesting. Um, but then yeah, she's in like A Woman Is a Woman. That's a significant one, as well. Um, see, I'm looking at these other titles. Last Tycoon. Okay, yeah. It's a Elia Kazan film, uh, which was adapted from an unfinished F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, no, novella. Wow. Yeah, she's she's incredible in this film. Uh, like, so amazing. I found a quote. So I, I read there's an article on Criterion's website. I think it's probably like one of the articles that comes in the Criterion edition of Jules and Jim, but it's on Jules and Jim by John Powers, who actually that mm-hmm. that name you might recognize because he wrote all the stuff in the Wong Kar Wai set and that Wong Kar Wai book uh, that I think you and I both purchased a copy of. He wrote that as well. So we've talked about him before, but he wrote this essay. And then uh, here's just a quote about her and her character, Catherine. It says, on paper, the mercurial Catherine seems an implausibly grandiose conception, a woman both giddy and tragic, proto-feminist and male-dominated, driven by Eros and Thanatos. But as played by Moreau, a pop-eyed siren with the ferocity of Betty Davis and the kitty cat wiles of Tuesday Weld, Catherine becomes one of the modern movie's triumphant characterizations, the enema as autocrat. So... I, I like his writing style for one thing, but yeah, I think that's true because she is, she seems contradictory um, in that she like, there's this, the scene where they've been to some, they've been to a play and Jules is spewing a bunch of misogynistic stuff about <laughs> what he basically like was inspired by the play. And he's saying all these things about uh, women are like this. And um, you know, they have to, and, and like, I think he says the the woman's fidelity is the most important part of any mm-hmm. relationship. Like, oh my god! And then she jumps in the river, right? Which is a great moment. And so she is she is in a way this sort of um, you know rebellious feminist person. But then at the same time, she is so uh, tied to the men in her life. Uh, and so like that that seems contradictory on in a way. But I think yeah, the the performance grounds it in such a way that the character really works. The performance is is so so amazing. Um, yeah, so this is, I think, my first time really noticing her. So apparently I've seen her in a few mm-hmm. other things, but uh, I thought she was incredible in this. Yeah, and I think as a character, like, I feel like I've known a couple of people who are like this, mm-hmm. right? Who just, like, are such, like, powerful personalities and demand, they just, like, command attention. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, I remember, like, the first time I saw this film, I thought that a good alternate title would just be, like, dot, 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 and Catherine you know uh, yeah. and just because like she really is like the focus and like every time anything anyone gets comfortable she like has this way of disrupting yeah what's happening right just like like the moment you were talking about where like they're having this conversation she's not really a part of it and she's like this is not what we're doing i'm gonna jump in the river and she just commands yeah. like mm-hmm. she just directs the situation um to what she wants and and there's no and she's selfish and she's okay with that. And she has, she has a worldview um, that is sort of odd. Right? Like, cause they, they talk a lot about when she, she has to like even the score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like what, what, I mean, like what even does that even really mean? Yeah. But like, she has a way of like, just making it like forcing you to be okay mm-hmm. with whatever she wants. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's very true. And, and like, she holds a lot of sway in a way over the men in her life, but at the same time, she seems to really be dependent on them as well. It's it's really interesting. I think so. I guess maybe we're jumping into just talking about the film itself. But I was so fascinated by this just because of those relationship dynamics and like the gender dynamics of it all. I thought were really interesting. And it's like I say this all the time when I watch a classic movie. But I'm like, oh, I can't believe these things were on people's mind this many years ago because it feels modern in a way. Um, kind of the the relationship dynamics of it. I mean, I'm I'm sure that 
people who are polyamorous probably really like this movie and like there's a lot to kind of chew on with with that sort of thing too uh, and i didn't know that was an aspect of the story at all actually going into it um i really yeah well and you know and it's adapted from a book it's adapted mm-hmm. it's like, like the it's semi-autobiographical but yeah i mean it's adapted from a book that was like is about the the relationship with this author and a friend of his and his friend's wife um and so like yes not only was this depicted in media but this was like actually happening you know i guess to some extent and probably going back several thousand years you know or to like the dawn of dawn of man Mm -hmm. um but i think a lot of it is just like in you know in american media we're just very squeamish about things and there's certain things we just don't talk about yeah it feels it feels pretty transgressive by like you know modern american standards um but it also like i i always always wonder like is that how it struck the audience at the time in France in that time? Like, was this like, um, you know, did it feel revolutionary in the way that it kind of did to me watching it the other night? Like, um, yeah, and maybe there's not an answer to that that's easily discernible, at least for this conversation. But I am curious about, like, how did audiences react to this? Obviously, it was a very successful movie. There's some essay I read by... Um, by Martin Scorsese, I can't remember. He, he's talking about like being alive at this time and like mm-hmm. all this, all the art house cinemas. You could go down the block to this and see Jules and Jim. We can go over here and see this. And um, it, it, that was, I think, I'm trying to remember where that was. I'll try to find it and link to it. But it was really fascinating. It kind of put me in the mindset of like a cinema fan at this time. That's kind of a tangent, but um, but yeah, I, I am curious like how how audiences felt about this film. Yeah, I you know uh, I think Truffaut made another film. I can't remember the name of it, but you referenced in an interview where it's the same situation but reversed. Right, so there's two two yes, women, it's one man, two English lovers. I think is the name. Yeah, of and it just didn't do as well. Hmm. Um, and I guess you know the, there are certain aspects of of this that I think people maybe are more comfortable with than than others, hmm. or maybe the film's not good. Maybe that's why it didn't do well. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you mean it's like reverse in it. terms of it's two women and one man? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, and I think it's also adapted from a work by the same author. Well, I'm going to look and see really quickly to make sure I have the title of that film right. Because I one of the essays I looked at, I didn't read the whole thing, but it's also on Criterion's website. Uh, and it is about that film. And it basically said that like Jules and Jim Truffaut is young and kind of carefree in a way and makes this really energetic film about this love triangle, Jules and Jim. And um, later in his career, once he's like, like he was like, he was in his thirties or not even 30 yet when he made uh, Jules and Jim. And then later in his career, yeah. he made two English, two girls English girls. Yes. Yeah. And it's, which is a, it's sort of a more, uh, according to this, this essay is a, like a more mature look at this kind of situation. And, um, he's, he seems a little more jaded with life or something like that. So I could also see how that might sell a little less better than this kind of fun. And it's so funny. I was thinking about like, <laughs> when I tell my wife about the movies I'm watching, I give her like, you know, one sentence and it's like, uh, I watched the 400 blows really interesting uh and also terribly sad and then i watched jules and jim this kind of fun and sexy movie and then terribly sad <laughs> and then viva savi interesting and then really sad <laughs> but uh but yeah with jules and jim it does i think there's such an energy and it it is it's so fun for a lot of it and then it settles into this kind of melancholy almost melodrama kind of feeling at the end it's like what's what what's she gonna do next is kind of how i felt at the end of this movie and then i almost not predicted the ending but i was like i mean this is gonna escalate to some some degree to what it does and that's kind of what happens um but yes uh i did really like this movie um, I've got forgot what I was talking about at this point. Oh, well, but, we were talking about yeah. two English girls, yes, which yes, actually, so, so it, it's also like the two women are not friends; they're sisters. Ah, interesting. So that's yeah. Well, is there anything? Uh, I guess so. You texted me about the style of this movie the other day when you went, or today earlier, and I, I immediately first thought oh, he's probably talking about the filmmaking style, but he also could be talking about the fashion because that's something that I really liked uh, was the clothing. But yeah, were you talking about like the actual? I was. I was not talking about the. I was talking about the filmmaking. Just yeah, be, yeah. one, it's like this movie. Like it, that pace to me is amazing, mm. right? Like it really, like it starts and it moves and it's subtitled, but the and they're but they're like fast subtitles, so you kind of yeah. either have to like read them fast or just like accept that you're not going to catch 
yeah. every single word. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then like there are these different stylistic elements like uh, the, there's this the scene where uh, Therese, I think, is the, is the character's mm-hmm. name. Yeah. And she has she's just like, what's that, like a steam engine? Yeah, she like blows a out of her cigarette like she looks like a train. Yeah, right. And then like the <laughs> camera just tracks her face as she does like a full circle around the room and then comes mm-hmm. back to Jules. And I that like and just like the energy in that shot, like mm-hmm. it's so alive and vibrant. Yeah. And then like later, there's the scene where Catherine is saying like, you know, before I used to be sad, and there were like these freeze frames, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, like they'll yeah. just freeze on different expressions. And I was like, that is such. Yeah. interesting touch and yeah. i and then like and i was reading that like scorsese referenced this film for goodfellas like in terms of i read like, that too i was gonna bring yeah. that up. go ahead like like just like the voiceover narrative mm-hmm. and just like some of those freeze frame elements and things like that like he was trying to channel this energy and like that goodfellas is another movie that's just like is constantly Jesus. moving yeah right and but in a way where and i don't i'm not trying to like just like slag on stuff but, but like there's there's a good way to like keep your film like the pace of your film going and then there's like a bad way. And I think a way that's not really successful is like the force awakens. Okay. Where yeah. It's just like the plot. It's just always sort of like moving forward before you have time to process anything. Mm-hmm. But like, it seems like it's in a way to keep you from thinking about what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Whereas like there's an intentionality to the, the pace and the energy in Jules and Jim and in Goodfellas and like films like that, where it's like this, it's about making you feel a certain way, mm-hmm. not to hide like a lack of a story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I read that about Goodfellas as well. And, and specifically like the opening um, of Goodfellas has, you know, this long narrator mm-hmm. and voiceover. And then so does this. And that was so this movie just opens with like this bombastic, like I think trumpets or some, some kind of brass and this loud music and then really fast. Like, it was almost overwhelming. I can imagine like being in a cinema and then that comes on the screen and just like pff, mind blown, you know, and it, it is so quick for the first like two or three minutes of explaining things in this narration and the camera's moving all over the place. Whereas like 400 blows, which I also watched has a, also a really great opening, but it's like this kind of a little slower and we're seeing all these shots of the Eiffel tower and it's kind of drawing it both really good introductions. Um, but yeah, I liked the beginning of this film a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's just so, it's like alive, you know, yeah. like it's just, it's just, I can't, I just, it just makes it makes you excited to want to like keep watching it in yeah. a way that I think a lot of films don't just can't do. Mm-hmm. It's actually it's sort of depressing actually because when you think <laughs> about a lot of films now, and it's like just like the creativity of what they were doing in the late fifties and the sixties, and like a lack of creativity from like large productions now. Mm, yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, I always come back to art and commerce. I probably think too much about capitalism, but I think that's probably a lot of the reason is, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, like with the amount of money involved yeah. in films now, they're just much more conservative in what they do because mm-hmm. there's a lot of money involved. Got to please everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also on the, the energy aspect of it, the when they race across the bridge i love that scene as wow. well and they first of all she like dresses and drag basically he's like let's see if i can fool someone they think i'm a man which is such a funny thing and then yeah the there's a close-up like a kind of side profile as she's running and then just like yeah the energy of that and then there's a few kind of sequences later in the film where they're kind of running together like through a early in the film when they're they're young and carefree and they're running through this park and then Later, it's kind of recalled when they have Sabine there, the daughter, and that, like that, I, you always ask me, did you cry when I watch a movie? <laughs> that was the moment that I got really emotional was like after all these years and World War One has happened, they've been separated, now they're back and they kind of fall into it. And then, of course, that's kind of shattered in the next few scenes and everything kind of falls apart again. Yeah. But um but like having that friendship and the relationship back again and now with this new added element of their daughter. Um, but also on the freeze frame thing, I love that touch too early in the film. And then it, it comes back just one moment when they are reunited Jules and Jim and they like shake hands and it freeze frames and it's like they're back. Yeah. Really just so creative formally that, that, that I think was uh, yeah the most exciting thing for me about this movie. Um, I have to mention too, Sabine is the cutest kid ever. <laughs> she's like such big round cheeks. And she says, uh, at one point she's, oh, Jim, and it's just <laughs> cute. Um, so I, I always loved when a Sabine was there, but, um, 
Oh, I also loved this. So there's parts of, I was looking through my notes on the film, but they have this long discussion, almost like in Viva Savi, where, you know, she sits down and talks to this philosopher mm-hmm. and then what they read a portion of something about Edgar Allan Poe. And it's like it bringing in those other things. It happens maybe a little more organically in this, which maybe that's also an interesting like counterpoint with Godard. Is he's becoming more like academic almost and bringing all these things in. Um, whereas this felt like more of the narrative and, and, the warmer idea but they talk about the genders of words and because he uh jules is is german german and then jim is uh french and so they like what what words have different genders and which ones don't have a gender which is such an interesting thing as you know as a student of english we don't really have the that equivalent in english uh and so i, I thought that was fascinating um as well Another, I'm just kind of like laundry listing things I liked about the movie. But when they are, there's the World War One sequence, which is longer than I expected. And we get that archival footage you mentioned. And we have like their letters back and forth, like to their lovers. And I was so moved also by they each, because they end up fighting on opposite sides of the war. They're called back, he's called back to Germany to fight. Um, they both have a line about, I worry every day that I'm going to kill Jim. I worry every day that I'm going to kill Jules. I was so moving. That was really, really well done as well. But yeah. yeah, you know, I usually, there's something about like a lot of World War One movies that don't work for me hmm. because, um, and I mean, I guess, I mean, I wasn't there, but when you read about like World War One and trench warfare, yeah. it's just so horrific. Yeah. But I don't know how you can romanticize it, except that it gets romanticized and the like, as like a counterpoint to like world war two a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So like, and I, I think, I guess also like part of it is like, was just with world war one, there was a sense of like, what is this, what is this even about? Like, mm-hmm. why is this even yeah. happening? Um, but like, this is one of the few world war one movies where it works, you know, mm-hmm. just like the idea, um, like the depiction of it works for me here. Yeah. Um, another one would be like the life and death of Colonel blimp, I guess, which is, mm-hmm. it's kind of weird. It's, 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 a, it's a movie by, uh, Powell and Pressburger, who did the red shoes, but it, it's kind of romanticizes the war a little bit, but it, I think it's a really, um, it's, it sort of ends the eve of World War II, which sort of explains why he might romanticize some aspects of something mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like that. Um, I'm actually not sure when Jules and Jim ends. Yeah, it's a little vague. Like, and even like at first I was like, oh, this must be World War One, but I wasn't clear on that at the beginning either. Like I wasn't sure what the yeah. time frame was. But I think um, there's like a reference towards the end that sounded like maybe they're in the thirties. Hmm. But I'm not I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know either. But yeah, the, I thought the inclusion of the war stuff was was well done. And yeah, I mean just generally this movie covered a lot more time than I expected as well, you know by the end of the movie it's been i don't know a very long time <laughs> like it's been maybe a decade or longer uh i mean it must be more than a decade because they have this child and everything um so yeah just looking at just just looking at a friendship over that much time like i think that's what's cool too is like the the relationship between jules and jim is really well established and is even an important part of the story going forward apart from Catherine. and then of course she's a part of it as well but like when I mean, I think some of the most significant parts of the film too, for me are when, so Jim has this attraction to Catherine and like, we know it and he kind of knows it and he's kind of like trying not to. Um, but then when Jules has the heart to heart and says, uh, not this one. Yeah. Yeah. He said at the beginning, he says, not this one, but then much later in the film when it's like, okay, this is probably going to happen. He, that's where he says like, he basically gives his blessings. Like, don't let me be an obstacle here, even though they are married. And yeah, that, and the fact that that was shocking, but at the same time, like, I believed that he would do that because these are such good friends, like the kind of person that Jules is. Like, there's such a good um, sense of character f- for each of the people involved. Uh, and sometimes, I don't know, in movies, it's like, okay, there's just two men and they're they're kind of like guys. But, like, they each have their own distinct um worldviews and like we, we just really get a, a good sense of each of them and and then that ends up of course playing into how everything happens in the last third or so and they're good friends but it's also just like a lot of it seems like it's just 
this is the only way Jules knows how to ensure that Catherine will stay in, in his life. Right. And like, like also the other threat is like the other guy that she's seeing mm-hmm. is saying like, you come with me and bring your daughter. And so mm-hmm. Jules is also trying to hang on to his daughter as well. Yeah, I think it's on the surface. It seems like Jules must just let everyone walk all over him, and that's mm-hmm. not exactly the case. You know, it's it's not that simple. And I think that the performance does a good job of like showing that that he, um, yeah, I mean, he loves her, and and it's a way to. I think there's also a, a brief moment where Catherine and Jim are talking when they've just kind of taken up together, and they're like walking in the woods, and there's a moment where she says something like we'll we'll both respect him and he respects both of us and like this will work you know mm-hmm. and it's it's just yeah that that dynamic is so unusual but um just, jim also makes a reference to his uh to jules buddhist philosophy at mm, one point oh yeah i forgot about that yeah and it's just like okay yeah like maybe this is something he's done some some work on himself yeah <laughs> to, get, to get to this point <laughs> he's cool with this yeah and then yeah albert's the the other side of that yeah wow well but then the narrator tells us that when at one point when Catherine starts flirting with jules again jim gets jealous yes yeah Yeah. it's an interesting moment too and he hears them upstairs like cavorting (laughs) or whatever and uh and there's just just like a brief moment and then it's like things kind of go back to normal yeah so it's it's not as simple that they're like um i don't know to put it in like modern terms which you know they didn't have back then it's not as quite as simple as they're they're like a triad or they're poly or whatever um there's like the lines aren't always clear cut i guess Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think there's not always communication about defining how this all works they're just kind of living together yeah interesting um well is there anything else that you have learned about this film in your research that you want to bring into this discussion i would say the one thing I think I would like to see it again to see how much this is true. But like this, the music really holds everything together. It's so romantic. Oh yeah, you mentioned, but that also before. sort of melancholy. And it's uh, it was composed by a guy named Georges Delarue, mm-hmm. and like I think like it's on like Times list of like top one hundred film scores of all time, um, which I think it deserves to be on there. And, and it's just like there's something like it's so perfectly matched for the tone of this film mm. right because it is sort of like melancholy and like it's not it, it, like you, if you're just like kind of casually listening it kind of sounds upbeat but it really isn't and it's mm-hmm. it directs you what to where the film is going yeah that's interesting that's a, an element that i like i definitely noticed oh this music is nice but i didn't key into it that closely that, that's what i'll watch for on a rewatch is paying closer attention to that score um yeah, I think. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say I didn't really look into like the production, uh, yeah. really of the, of the film, so I don't know if there are any interesting stories about like how the film was made. Yeah, I, I don't either. <laughs> we can <laughs> cut this part then. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I really enjoyed it, and yeah, the energy of it. It does. It kind of transforms into this melancholy place at the end it almost far be it for me to criticize a masterpiece from you know 60 years ago 70 years ago but it, it got to be at the end a little bit like okay i'm ready for it it, it, it becomes the story becomes what's Catherine going to do next to mm-hmm. cause trouble and it, it became a little bit not repetitive but just a little um i don't know I also don't want to say it was hard to get through because I was invested, but it, I think it maybe dragged a little or something. Um, and it kind of, I guess it needed time to build to that ending, um, which again, so tragic. And like, like the final shot is him just walking away from the, like the crematorium, crematorium or I guess he's, is he in the cemetery? I think he's yeah, like think put he's their the ashes in a vault. Yeah. 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 Just walk away. And then it's fiend. And, uh, yeah pretty yeah i mean things escalate kind of quickly right (laughs) like catherine catherine is spurned right Mm because jim decides to go back to uh not gertrude but it starts with a g yeah it's it's funny because it it almost sounds like a masculine name to my you know modern american yeah i'm trying to remember what it is though as well i'll look really quickly um oh my gosh i lost my tab again too (laughs) the character's name is gilbert it looks like gilbert with an e at the end yeah 
Yeah. So like when Jim decides to go back to her, um, Catherine just feels like a spurned, spurned woman. And so she starts to act out erratically more so than usual, I guess, before she goes back. What's his name? Arthur? Was uh, Albert. Or Albert. Yeah. Albert. Yeah. Right. So, like yeah. And like, and she makes a point of making sure they know. Yeah. What she's doing because yeah, she's like, yeah. come get in my car and we'll go. And she happens to meet up with Albert and happens to stay with them. And then they have to like walk back. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's so interesting. So there's also that sequence where like he finally, Jim finally leaves when they can't conceive. And then she tells him that she has, mm-hmm. but it's never confirmed or denied. Is your read on that that she really was pregnant and then lost? The I don't know. Or that, I don't that know. Was, that was fabricated. I think he accuses her of lying, but it's never. Yeah, I never see her, you know, pregnant belly or anything. They also make a big deal of like them sort of waiting to try until because, yeah. like, again, sure she's no like slept else. with Albert. Yeah, and so she has to like wait and make sure that if she gets pregnant, it's not going to be Albert's. And there's just something that's toxic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. Um, and it's weird because, like, as a viewer, I don't want to have any judgment, right? But right, right. It, like the whole the whole situation is just not a good situation. It's not healthy at all, actually. Yeah. Even though like they try, like Jules tries to make it work, mm-hmm. but like it's just not. Yeah, and I thought it was going to get to a place that maybe they're going to pull this off, and that's going to be like the the wild ending is that this no. works. But no. And then Catherine pulls a gun on Jim. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that <laughs> yeah. Scene. So that that happened, I was like, I I thought she might kill him, and then she doesn't kill him then, but later. She does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a sly reference to um to her buying a gun and Jim and Jules thinking that she was gonna hurt herself. That's right. Yeah. And it's like, oh, there's the gun, and yeah. she's gonna hurt somebody else. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Wow. Quite is a there film, like a Jim? Yeah, I wonder if it's sort of like a like a good feminist writer who's mm. taken on that character, like really written a good essay is what I should actually Yeah, like. I would love to read that too. So because there's just there's a line early on that uh, it's when he says, Jules is asking Jim, you, you think I should marry her? And uh, Jim says, you know, maybe she's not meant for one man. Maybe she mm-hmm. says something like, um, or I think I wrote it down. It, it's very male gazy what he says. She's a vision for all, perhaps not meant to be loved by any one man. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there is that aspect of it that at, at times feels a bit misogynistic. Um, I mean, obviously that sounds very misogynistic, but, but again, the, the character has so much depth that it's, it's not quite that simple. So yeah, I would love to read um, a feminist writer talking about this. It's a good call. Mm-hmm. Well, any other thoughts on Jules and Jim before we wrap up this episode? Um, I love it. Maybe I'll screen it sometime. I don't know. Yeah, that would be a good uh, one for the big screen. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's on Criterion Channel. There's a ton of Criterion uh, extras with it that I did not have time to get to. There's, there's like two commentaries, I think, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, so check all of that out. Stream it there. It's also streaming on HBO Max. Um, all right. Well, I think we can wrap up our Jules and Jim talk. Let's talk about what we're going to do next time as we move to the left bank. Uh, yeah, so I guess first we're going to talk about what is the left bank. So mm-hmm. We'll get into what that. Is. So it, is that just briefly, is that like sort of a subset or just like another group of filmmakers kind of tied into French New Wave, but their own thing? Or how, how, how would you describe that? I would describe them as a group of filmmakers that were a little older than the Caillou Cinema bunch and were probably more politically defined from the outset. And I think mm-hmm. they grapple with politics in their films from the beginning, whereas with um, the Caillou Cinema crowd, um, we can actually really talk about sort of like how like, the different approaches to politics and film and whether or not mm-hmm. uh, politics should be subservient to story or whether or not a film should stand in its own right. Yeah, um, but That's like some of the stuff that we're going to have to get into when we talk about the difference yes. between Caillou Cinema Group and the left bank. And so yeah, we'll talk about that. And then we're also going to talk about One Sings, The Other Doesn't. That's a film from Agnes Varda. Excited to pull my Varda box set down and, and pop another one of those discs in. And that's one that, I, I as I understand, is pretty political in nature. Um, I think I heard a podcast talk about it you know, a few years ago, and I barely remember anything. But so I'm excited to watch it um, and to talk a little bit about Varda and her place in all of this. And then we're also going to talk about La Jatee. The greatest short film of all time, according That's to right. Omaya. 
Uh, all right. So that's for next time. Uh, One Things the Other Doesn't, I believe, is also streaming on HBO Max. Let me just verify that quickly if you want to watch that to kind of get caught up. One Things the Other Doesn't from 1977. Yes, it's on HBO Max and Criterion Channel. Um, I forgot to check about La Jetée. Let me look really quick. Uh, apparently you can you can rent it uh, from it Apple TV, much. Amazon. Or, uh, actually, you know what? It's also on YouTube. Yeah, I'm seeing it's on YouTube. Because I've sent it to people. It's 28 yeah. minutes long here, so I can I can even link to that. Um, some of these older films, like the copyrights are messy, and uh, so I, I don't think it's a terrible thing to share the YouTube link. So I'll I'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, all right, cool. So that's for next time. And from there we can wrap up. And so yeah, that the plan is for that to be two weeks from mm-hmm. this uh, this episode. So we will talk to you next time. Thanks so much, Omaya. Thank you. Huge thanks to Omaya. I can't wait to continue on in this series with him. And with that, thank you, thank you for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes, and you can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Art House Garage, become a patron over at patreon.com slash arthousegarage, or find a link in the show notes. You can also buy an Art House Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com slash shop. If you want to support us without spending any money, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, and that is hugely helpful. Stay in the loop about Art House Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe, or you can email me directly, Andrew at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.